This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's get an update on what is happening out of Ottawa today because there's going to be some more announcements coming up with Prime Minister Trudeau at about 8.15 this morning. So joining us now, Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. All right. So what can we expect to hear today? Well, today we're expecting to hear uh, two big things. The first one is that we're expecting to hear about an increase in eligibility or programs. Uh, We're waiting for the exact details for businesses, because as you know, there's been a lot of criticism, in particular small businesses, those that have a payroll, for example, under $50,000 last year, uh, which could be super new, uh, or a few others, uh, some who are concerned, for example, that they're sole proprietors, that they may not qualify for some of these programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to have to wait to find out exactly what those details are, um, but it's definitely more financial support for those small businesses that are struggling right now. And as you know, that's an awful lot because there is um, the money for wages, but that's just one part of any business's expenses, right? You're talking Mm -hmm. about rent, uh, which they're looking at covering off with commercial rent subsidies. Um, You're looking at capital costs that they have to pay for equipment, um, things that they have to maintain. So all of those things are creating some stress for small businesses. So look for that to expand. And also we'll find out what exactly the Prime Minister talked about with other G7 leaders this morning. Uh, I don't know whether or not he's still on that call. He was on it as of 8 a.m. That's when it was scheduled for a round. Uh, to be sitting down with other G7 leaders to talk about how do they have sort of a united front in this COVID-19 world. Because there have been reports of countries trying to buy out equipment from under each other. Um, discussions about how quickly you reopen the economy. And obviously those big, literally big uh, seven economies um, really need to have some sort of discussion about how to do that in some kind of a coordinated manner so you don't have one country uh, charging off in one direction and all the others doing something completely different. At the end of the day, you can't make them do anything. Yes. They all have their own minds. But there is at least an attempt at coordination in the approach. Right. And, and the premiers, I guess, he'll be talking with them later tonight? That's right. He has a call scheduled for later with the premiers. Um, and we're expecting that call to be about a few things. He's having regular update calls, as you can imagine. There's still no sense that the Emergencies Act, which we talked about a lot in the mm-hmm. early days of this, uh, is something that's going to be brought in. Scott Moe, who is the head of the Council of the Federation, which is um, the all the premiers, as they speak to the federal government, has said that they do not want that. The premiers aren't interested. Um, they don't feel that the federal government needs to override their jurisdiction, which is what the Emergencies Act does. But they will talk about how to coordinate on that jurisdiction. And one of the key areas is long-term care homes, because that's something that falls under provinces. But as we've seen with what's happened with this COVID-19, one of the biggest tragedies has been the elderly and and how some of these homes are being run or checked on. Uh, The stress is being put on workers, workers in some cases not having access to the appropriate equipment. They've now limited some of this. So, for example, you can't work in more than one home so that there's not a risk that you're going to spread contagion. But the downside of that is it means it's affected people's income. So they're talking about how to make sure that people are still being fairly compensated, even though they can't have as much work perhaps as before. But also that some people who are working full time in some of these homes were making less than they'd make on the CERB, uh, which doesn't seem very fair Mm. when they're awfully critical right now. So that's something they're going to be talking about as well. So that means some kind of expansion of the CERB? 
No, because the CERV is only designed for people who are um, mostly unemployed. You can make up to $1,000 a month. If they're making less than 1000 and on reduced hours, they would qualify. Um, you know, you raise a good point. Right. Could they roll it into the CERB? I suppose. But uh, the intention there, I think, is more to direct something very specifically at those workers. But again, that's a provincial jurisdiction. So the federal government, it's a little harder for them to mandate that versus just something that's for people who are largely out of work. But to your point, yesterday they expanded the CERB to include people who are making less than $1,000 a month because the reality was right. a lot of people hadn't lost their jobs completely, but they weren't making nearly enough uh, to cover their expenses or as much as they were before. Right. So that kind of seems to be what they're doing, right? Is it a little tweak here, a little tweak there? Yeah, or massive tweaks in some cases. Uh, It's been really interesting to watch it roll out because it's not a universal basic income program, but it looks more and more like that. Um, They've sort of tried to include a a lot of folks. And that said, I hear from people every day who aren't included, and we hear you. Uh, People who have disabilities, seniors who have lost their income, that was rooted in their investments. Uh, So there's still a lot of people who aren't necessarily fitting in there. Mature students is another one we're hearing about. Um, but they, they have sort of tried to increase it rather than say, no, it's, it's this limited program. It's only for these people. They have tried to sort of put as many people under the umbrella as they can. All right, Mercedes, thank you very much for the update. Thanks for having me. That is Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief, telling us what is happening uh, from Ottawa today. And as you heard, it is a busy one there as well. We've got the 815 press conference with the Prime Minister, which, of course, we will have for you live. Uh, He's been on a call with the G7 leaders this morning. We'll be meeting or talking online with all the premiers uh, later today as well. So there is more to come on that. Keep it tuned in right here for the latest. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you know, this is a tough time out there for lots of companies, for cities, as we've heard, and organizations. And the latest we're hearing from on that front is the Vancouver Aquarium, a staple in Stanley Park, right, where generations of kids have gone to learn about our oceans and what's in them. But could all of that be at risk permanently because of COVID-19? Well, the aquarium says it is facing bankruptcy. Yeah, bankruptcy within a couple of months if they can't get emergency funding. To talk more about that now, we are joined by the CEO and president of OceanWise, Lassie Gustafson. They are the group that runs the aquarium. Thank you very much for being here this morning. No, thanks for having me. So what? tell me about the situation. What's going on? So 17th of March, we closed the aquarium to the public for COVID-19 reasons. Obviously, the right thing to do from a health point of view. From a financial point of view for the Vancouver Aquarium, this is a disaster, of course. 85% of our revenue comes from aquarium operations. So since the 17th of March, we've cut all costs that we possibly can cut, um, including laying off, hopefully temporarily, 343 people, asking others to go down, working part-time. But unlike many other organizations, we can't switch off the light, lock the door and go home. Uh, We have 70,000 animals in the aquarium. We love them and we care for them, and we're not going to leave them alone. Uh, They need our care. They need our support. Uh, so we have about 100 people working in the aquarium uh, to take care of the, uh, all our animals, anything from spiders to sea otters and, and, and sea lions. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this doesn't come for free. So we have, a, we have costs for just about a million dollars a month to keep the animals uh, in good health and happy uh, and make sure that the habitats that they are in 
are of, of best possible quality. Uh, we do have some reserves, uh, and we're spending them right now. Uh, we are normally not depending on government grants, but what we've done uh, after we've done all the savings that we possibly can do is we've reached out to both the federal provincial governments and to the city of Vancouver and asked for emergency funding. Uh, so far, our dialogue with both the federal and the provincial governments has been constructive. They, I generally do believe that they want to help, uh, but we have yet to see any money. City of Vancouver has its own problems, as I'm, yes. I'm, I'm sure your listeners are aware, and they're not in a position to help us right now. We respect that this is this is a difficult situation for, for everybody. Okay, so then, Lassie, uh, how, how much longer can the aquarium sustain itself under the current conditions without help? Um, Two max three months is, is our assessment. And, we, of course, we're looking at any potential savings we, we can every day. We're reaching out to – we have a handful of gener- generous donors who's been giving up substantial amounts over the years. We're talking to them. We have a large group of supporters. We've been asking them for help, and they've been responding positively. But, of course, everybody's having a hard time now. So I think we're looking primarily at government support for our survival at this point in time. Okay, and you ha- and even though you say they seem receptive, you haven't officially heard back on that front. I no, we re- we are optimistic. Uh, the, this is a crisis not only for uh, Vancouver or, or for Canada, and, and uh, we know that the governments are very busy taking care of perhaps more urgent problems. I hear there's more than a million new unemployed, and they've been working with the wage subsidies. So we remain very optimistic that the governments will step up in time. Uh, but we do also want to be totally transparent with all our, our guests and visitors and members uh, about our situation. Now, Lassie, do you know how other aquariums are dealing with this? Like, certainly you're not the only organization that is kind of facing this in North America. Uh, as far as I know, there is not one uh, aquarium in North America open to the public. I know our colleagues in the States, have already started receiving support uh, uh, through bank loans, uh, which is, of course, an option that we're looking at as well. Uh, but this is this is a difficult uh, situation for aquariums and zoos uh, around the world, for sure. Okay, so you're also looking at the idea of getting some kind of financing. Yeah, no, we're looking at every every possibility. But, uh, of course, banks are, are, um, are commercial. They have commercial interest, in, and, and they... Uh, why would they loan money to somebody who doesn't even have a gate open, no income? Uh, but there are there are opportunities, I think. Uh, but we we still haven't found a, a, a genuine solution. Is there a way for the public to get involved with this as well? Yeah, we we love to engage with the public, and we with no the normal circumstances, we do it every day. We have a million visitors a year. Right now, unfortunately, the best thing you can do as an individual is to go to our website vanaqua.org. And give us some money. If you can donate $10, you can donate $50. Or, of course, if you can donate more, now is the time. Because we are seriously considering closing down the operations for real. What would happen, though, at that point? Like, do you have contingency plans? You talk about the thousands of animals that you have there. What would you do? So I, I don't think this ever happened in, in Canadian history that you're closing down an, an uh, uh, aquarium with 70,000 animals. Well, I know that's never happened. Uh, because we are the oldest and the largest aquarium in Canada. But we do have uh, rules and procedures through our uh, membership in the Association for Susan Aquariums. There are uh, legislation that we will follow. 
finding new homes to 70,000 animals is not going to be easy, but obviously we're going to do everything we can uh, to make sure that the animals continue to live uh, happy and healthy lives. Now, when would you have to make those decisions? Like, do you, you can't wait until the money runs out, but when do you start planning for that kind of contingency? Because as you say, that can't be done overnight. No, we're planning for that already and we're setting money aside. So that's part of our timeline is to make sure that if we have to go bankrupt, we will do it paying all our, all our loans and all our debts and making sure that we have the money required for rehoming those animals. Okay, so then lastly, when it comes to finding out about the emergency funding, do you have a date like where you, where you need to know by now or you start making or you start enforcing those plans? Now, we're, we're talking to, to, to government representatives and others daily, of course. Uh, I hope we will know by this week, but that's what I've been hoping every week since this started. Uh, the the two-month deadline is when we will start seriously winding down the animal operations. All right. Well, keep us updated on how that goes. For sure. Or more importantly, help us to survive. We will tell people about the website. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That is Lassie Gustafson, the CEO and president of the OceanWise Conservation Association. They are the organization that runs the Vancouver Aquarium. That website, vanaqua.org. Uh, you can go there and right away, as soon as you do, I was just checking, as soon as you do, they ask you, please help us. We need your donation. Here's the situation that we are facing. You just heard uh, him describe how they, how, the situation that they find themselves in right now. It's not easy. And he knows that uh, City, of Vancouver, City of Vancouver, which would normally be probably will be the first stop where you would ask them for help. They are in no position to help right now. They are waiting to hear from the federal and provincial governments, but you know, a lot of people under strain right now, a lot of organizations, lots of companies uh, that need help too. So again, that is vanaqua.org. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer this morning and find out what she is up to. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Well, first, I want to update a story that you were talking about yesterday at the very end of the show. This 99-year-old British war veteran. I love him. He's been, oh, he's unreal. He's been raising millions of dollars by walking laps around his garden. And how this all started is so sweet. He was hoping to walk 100 laps, so about 10 laps a day, around his yard by his 100th birthday. And that's coming up on April 30th. The good news is, his goal was to raise 1,000 pounds for the National Health Service. He blew that goal completely out of the water. <laughs> he was ahead of schedule on the laps as well. So he wrapped up his garden walk this morning. He finished his last 10 laps uh, early this morning. He has raised 13.7 million pounds. Wow which is equal to over $24 million Canadian, and you can still donate, so the fund is still growing. And as he finished his final laps, soldiers from the 1st Battalion Yorkshire Regiment gave him a guard of honour as he came in for his final lap because this man, 99-year-old Tom Moore, is also a captain in the military too. So the soldiers were there uh, to cheer him on as he made his final laps. Do you not love that story? I mean, he's just, uh, oh. with his walker, he's like making his way around his garden and he did 100 laps and he raised like like millions and millions of pounds. That You know what? The UK needs some good news stories right now and that is a big one. And it's also an example of getting a little exercise in your own backyard and not having to deal with the weird situation on the street. I don't know. Every time I seem to go for a walk on the street, there's 
there's often sort of an unusual social situation that yeah. kind of arises. So if you can just walk around your own backyard, That'd be you great. can save yourself. <laughs> yeah, that sort of weird tango that everyone's doing on the sidewalk these days where, okay, I'll go two steps. No, you're going to go left. Okay, I'll go, I'll go right. Okay, we're going to... And then you do this awkward sort of six-foot dance around each other to get past the other person. Tom's saving himself that. He's just walking in his own backyard. I know, lucky guy, right? I I have found it pretty good. Um, for the most part, I'd say people are very good and that you kind of go in opposite directions and give each other lots of space. And I always try to acknowledge that with a smile or a thank you uh, because, you know, we're all in tough times together kind of a thing and we understand this is unusual behavior. I find that I get just slightly irritated, Nikki, if nobody's, the person's not paying attention and you do pass too close to each other. Yes, I know exactly what you mean. You kind of you get a little you're like, irritated, whoa, hey, come on here, just pay attention. <laughs> At least let me know that you're trying to kind of move away a little bit. I think most people in my neighborhood are pretty good. You know, yesterday it was a beautiful sunny day, so there was lots of people out, and yeah, there was that you know where you both get to the maybe the curb at the same time at the corner of the street if you're yes. across, and if the other person's not paying attention, you're like, okay, or lots of kids on bikes. I know people kind of just letting their kids zoom ahead on the sidewalk, and you're going. Okay, what are we doing here? Are we still doing the six foot tango or kind of what's going on? Yeah, again, I think most people in my neighborhood have been, have been pretty good. I'll be honest with you. At first, I did find it really, really weird when people would walk across the street to get away from you because you almost, I mean, everything that we've known up until this point, you'd be kind of offended by that. Yes, you'd be like, that's true. What, what do I smell that? I, mean, I know. And now you're like, here? oh, that person's so nice. Thank you for doing that. So courteous. Thank you for crossing to the exact opposite side of the street so you don't even have to be in my presence. I mean, previous to that, we'd go, what the heck's wrong with that person? What's wrong with me? Should I be offended? And yeah, I think that's been a really weird mental change for a lot of people. But there has been some weird sidewalk etiquette that's sort of formed coming out of this, hasn't there? Yeah, that's certainly true. People are finding their way of, of dealing with it. I had to go through like a narrow, um, like, you know, there was construction going on. So they had, you know, one of those sidewalk mm, kind of things where they yes. cover it all up. And so as I went to go in, there's a bunch of people coming my way. So I stopped. It's kind of like when you go, you get down your car in a narrow street and you wait for the cars to go and then it's your turn <laughs> to go. So I stopped and I waited and I waited and I waited and I let everybody go. And then when it was empty, I start to go. And just as I did, somebody came in at the other end. <sighs> And I was like, well, I'm already going now. It was just like being in a car. I was like, well, I'm already going now. There's nothing I can do. Um, And so she saw me, stopped, backed up, walked out of it, and waited for me to uh, finish up. And so I I gave her a big thank you so much. That was very nice of you to do that when I walked out. But I think, yeah, like for the most part, I think people are pretty good about this. You know, uh, yesterday, Squire Barnes talked about this a little bit on the news, and he asked some people sort of in his travels about how they were finding this new social distancing on the street. Listen to this. I think everyone's doing a great job at keeping their distance and um, even crossing the street sometimes. Like, if we see a group of people, we'll, we'll cross the street to try to avoid. There's a few that don't, and there's a lot that actually give distance. For me, it's just a courtesy as well. Yeah, just a courtesy. Nice. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to hear from our listeners how they're finding it in their neighborhoods. Every neighborhood's going to be a little different. You know, if you're living in a really busy neighborhood, let's say you're living, you know, in the West End of Vancouver, then you're um, downtown West End, then yeah, maybe things are going to be a little bit harder for you to sort of navigate your way around people. But if you're living out in, in the suburbs, then maybe it is a bit 
easier in your beha- in, in your neighborhood. I don't know. Uh, people in evenings like this, when the weather is so nice, yeah. I think everybody's out there walking the dog. They're getting their fresh air. For, like I noticed yesterday evening when I took the dog out, it was, seemed quite busy, and I thought, oh, how am I going to handle this? But people were really good. Like people would run on the joggers, would run around you, and go out onto the street, and you know, keep moving. That's what I've been finding too. A lot of people jogging are just using the street instead because yeah. there's less car traffic. So, exactly. okay, runners, they're using the street. A lot of dog walkers, okay, well, you're kind of in the grassy medium and then you got the walkers and they're either on the street or, or they're on the sidewalk. So yeah, give us a, give us a shout and let us know. Uh, Simi, if, if you don't mind, can I tell people to send you an email? Oh, <laughs> no, you go right ahead. Send them my way. <laughs> okay, perfect. Simi at S-I-M-I at C-K-N-W.com. Let us know how things are going with the sidewalk etiquette in your neighborhood. Yeah, would love to hear your sidewalk etiquette stories on that. So as Nikki said, Simi at CKNW.com, and we'll check back in on that a little bit later. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's get an update now on what is happening overseas. We know the numbers in countries like the UK are really not getting better at this point. Let's find out how they are coping and dealing with this. Joining us now for more on that is Crystal Gumansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief. Good morning, Crystal. Hi there. How are you? I am good. Thank you. So tell me, what is it like in the UK right now? Well, actually, I am out at Trafalgar Square. We came out this morning to do some uh, live television hits with our colleagues across the country. And uh, it's it's so strange being outside. And I'm one of those people that unless I'm working, I'm, I'm staying indoors. So number one, it's odd to be outside. And number two, you see different waves of people. There'll be some that are clearly just out for a quick walk and others who are in groups and on bikes and kind of hanging out and relaxing. Uh, so it is it is interesting. I'm uh, right now I'm staring at uh, Big Ben down the long, long, narrow street. And, and time is sort of that strange thing, right? Because we don't know what day it is. We don't know what's going on. But of course, the issue of time around the lockdown in the UK is, is huge, and it is expected that it will be extended today. There's a, uh, an official meeting underway that they're looking at the science, and of course, there are no doubt a number of economists who are talking to the officials too, saying, you know, but we have to figure out a way to get back to normal. So it is expected that the lockdown will be extended. Uh, the talk is at least for three weeks. Um, of, of course, we just really don't have a handle on this this virus in the UK as of yet, but things are slowly trending towards uh, a better picture. Okay, and what is the picture right now? How many people have they counted as having passed away as a result of COVID-19? We're still waiting for the, the latest numbers to come out, but we're just under 13,000 hospital uh, registered deaths. So those are people who have gone into hospital and who have died there. But of course, uh, we know that the number would be much, much higher if they took into account uh, the number of deaths in personal care homes or people who have passed away at home or in any other facility. Um, so, you know, we got some numbers earlier in the week that could suggest that would be anywhere from 10 to 15 percent higher. So the death toll is quite staggering. Uh, but the infection rate, the infection rate continues to go up daily. And we're being told that will keep happening at least for another week, if not longer. Are, are people being good about this? That is a great question. On, on one hand, yes, because it's such a, a huge shift in, in, in culture and mindset. But then on the other hand, you know, I'm sitting here right now, and there's lots of people on bikes. They're kind of blowing into the square before my eyes. And, you know, they're just hanging out and taking selfies and, and relaxing. And you think, okay, well, we're allowed to go out for some exercise. That's completely acceptable. But 
you know, are they spending a little extra time outside? Likely, we have seen reports saying that people are spending way more time in parks than they would before. So while they're not downtown, while they're not shopping or, or outside because they can't shop anywhere, being shut down, they are still going outside. And, and that is a concern. And almost daily, there's sort of a new PR campaign from, from the National Health Service and government officials sending out tweet after tweet after tweet with different images saying, stay home, stay home. So what is the infection rate in the hospital situation? Well, the infection rate, as I said, it it continues to rise, and and that will keep happening. Now, in terms of hospitalizations, there has been a bit of a slow, and that's why I said it looks like the picture is getting better because there's a little bit of that trend when they show the graphics that it's starting to go down. But that could just be, you know, there was a, it's called the bank holiday, Easter holiday Monday, so maybe those weren't registered. We didn't get the information. So there's cautious optimism when we look at those numbers, but we do know that they will keep going up. One of the the graphs that that I find particularly interesting is we keep hearing that the UK is is on the same same path as Italy. And the last map that the government put out yesterday really showed that exact path. You see the upswing of Italy and the UK is just basically a copy and paste over top of that. Will it get to what we saw in Italy? No hospital capacity doing very well. They say that, you know, everyone is managing course, the UK did open a number of field hospitals to help ease that pressure. Um, but at this point, hospitals seem okay, but the numbers just continue to rise. Ooh, okay, Crystal, thank you very much for the update. You're welcome. Thank you. That is Crystal Gubansing, our Global News European Bureau Chief, talking about the situation in the UK. Uh, they expect to hear more about their lockdown situation later today. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, this self-isolation that we are all doing has cost us a lot of things. Jobs, of course, socializing time with family, you name it. But there's another aspect of the cost here that hasn't gotten as much attention. That is the cost of our physical health. So many of us have regular pain or treatment issues that need to be dealt with. Maybe it's massage therapy or physiotherapy, kinesiology, you name it. We're missing those treatments right now, that one-on-one time where somebody helps you out. And it is tough on our bodies and resulting in a lot of ongoing pain out there. So we wanted to talk more about that. How are people supposed to look after those uh, severe kind of aches and pains and get that pain management done during this time? Joining us is Gail Pateman, partner of Hollyburn Physiotherapy Clinic in West Vancouver. Gail, thanks very much for being here. Great. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Now, have you been hearing this from people too? Like, I'm sure by the time things are allowed to open up again, you're going to be flooded with clients who are, uh, you know, needing a lot of extra help. Well, um, we are finding that we're actually being contacted by our patients um, asking for help now. And we're able to offer that through uh, something called telehealth or virtual visits. So people can call us and we can connect with them with a video conferencing app and meet with them right in their home. Right. So you think there's enough enough people doing that or are people still going to be feeling the pain out there? I think people are still going to be feeling the pain, but I know that physiotherapists are uh, available and trying to reach out to their patients to help them. We're very skilled in being able to educate patients in um, being able to manage their problems and their injuries at home. And this uh, using a video conferencing um, is an, an amazing way of being able to do that connection, being able to be Maybe it doesn't replace the face-to-face contact or the hands-on contact, but we're able to interact with our patients, talk to them, help them 
understand their pain, understand their injuries, and help them give them some tools to help manage it while they're at home. And what do you think, what is the kind of impact this is having on people who are managing pain? I think that people are struggling, and we know that stress and anxiety and, and the world around us right now is certainly not helping with that, but um, contributes to people's um, feelings of pain. And one of the things that we can help with is being able to help help them manage, help them perhaps stay out of a, an emergency room visit or um, away from uh, dependence on a pain medication. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I agree that, that, that the cost of this um, this uh, uh, social isolation is the cost in our physical health, and we do need to be able to reach out and help people. And I believe this being able to use these virtual visits via telehealth is the way to do that. Right. It's tough. I mean, I'm, I'm used to going to massage therapy once every four weeks mm-hmm. uh, to deal with pain problems and not being able to do that. Like, I am feeling it in my body. And that's the kind of stuff we can't do remotely, unfortunately. No, that is tough to do remotely for sure. But, you know, being able to find out what kind of things can you do instead, what kind of maybe it's the good time to bring take up a home exercise program or a home stretching program. And while it doesn't replace the, the one-on-one contact, you're right, it does be able to help you learn how to do some self-management. So much of what we do as physiotherapists is educating people on how to manage the 23 hours that they're not in the clinic, the, the other six days a week that they don't come to see us and uh, help them move through move through their pain, help them improve their mobility. And that keeping people moving helps to help. We know that exercise is a, is a great way of managing pain and injury. So being able to teach people how to move properly is a, a, big, a great tool that we can use. Now, Gail, how common are these types of injuries? Like, I'm thinking there's an awful lot of people out there who have to manage their pain. Oh, I mean, yes. I mean, normally uh, all the physio clinics in Vancouver, in the province, in our country are busy you know, helping people manage their day-to-day function and day-to-day pain. And so now that we're not available to do that, then people, you know, I I feel there are people at home trying to manage. So, you know, if anybody's having problems, feel free to reach out to your physiotherapist. They're they're finding, everybody's finding ways to um, launch these, their telehealth, their their virtual visits so that they can speak to their patients and help them right in their homes. Right. Um, We're able to deliver exercise programs, and, um, you know, via, you know, video feed as well. So, you know, there's, there's some tools there to help people in this time when, when we don't have the option of seeing people face-to-face in a clinic. Right. That's maintenance, though, isn't it? I would imagine, like, a lot of times people are coming to physio as well, though, to get better. Will we progress during this time, or do you think we're just in a holding pattern? Uh, it could be. I mean, we hope that people can progress because we know that if we keep people moving, it does help and, and, and it does make a difference. But you're right. You know, when, when this is all... When this is all said and done, we hope that physiotherapy we hope that uh, physiotherapy physiotherapy clinics will be still be there um, and and get through this time. I mean, all small businesses are are uh, are suffering right now, but um, you know, being able to be there, uh, of course, uh, when when this is said and done. But we are here right now, and I think that's an important message for people to realize that we that people can reach out. Um, accredited uh, medical um, benefit providers are covering physiotherapy visits via telehealth. So there is some coverage and some help there. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not uh, the same as hands-on or the same as face-to-face, but it is an excellent alternative. Now, and we know it has results. That must mean a lot of adaptation for you as well and for other physiotherapists because you're not going to have all of the equipment available, right, to people at home. You're going to have to help them improvise. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, we are not going to have to help them improvise. And that is, I mean, honestly, so much of what my practice is or our practice is is to be able to educate people and help them 
manage at home. I mean, I've heard uh, my therapist tell me that, you know, when they're they're able to sh- see what in, what people are doing in their homes and, and help them functionally, you know, they're able to say, you know, I need to show you actually how I, I'm struggling to get up off this chair. Can, right. can I show you or off my toilet or, or in, in and out of my shower because it's awkward? What can I show you? And then because we can see it, we can, we can help them with some strategies. So it is a little bit more, it is more active. Um, treatment, but because you know we did, we don't have the passive tools. But that active treatment has been shown. There's evidence to show that it has an amazing impact, an amazing benefit to people, and we're still able to deliver that. Oh, all new times for us, uh, Gail. Thank you very much for your time. Great, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. This is mornings with Simi. Let's talk about how we're doing when it comes to social distancing, because there's a new poll out on this. And I know I, I talked with a, a pollster about this last week about for pollsters right now, this is a pretty good time because you've got a lot of people at home who might actually answer that phone call or take that poll online uh, and answer you your questions that you're asking about. So to talk about this latest one about how we're doing successes and failures on as, as we try to maintain social distancing, we're joined by Steve Moss at the president of Insights West. Hi, Steve. Good morning, Simi. Okay, so this is obviously a big question right now. What did you ask people? We wanted to start with uh, how people are doing with social, social distancing. Do they rate themselves as doing a good job or a poor job? And the numbers uh, were quite surprising. We have 89% of British Columbians that say that they're doing, a, uh, uh, they score themselves an 8, 9, or 10. And that includes about 41% of us who give us a 10 out of 10. Really? Don't, don't, doesn't that quite not add up, though, to you? <laughs> if everybody thinks they're doing a good job, but then we think somebody else isn't doing a good job, that doesn't seem quite right to me. It doesn't seem right. But you know what? You know, think of the polls we've done in the past about driving. Uh, we think we're a great driver, but we think everybody else is a terrible driver. So we have 89% of us who score ourselves as doing very well. But uh, our neighbors, we score only 35%. So we think that the rest of the province is uh, only 35% score that same level. Okay, so this is typical of how we kind of view things. Was there any kind of age group breakdown on this? Well, we think seniors are doing a better job than the rest of British Columbia. So uh, if the average person scored them uh, 66% doing an 8, 9, or 10. Uh, the number gets really surprising when you look at youth of British Columbia, so under 30 years of age. 13% is the score there. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So big differences on that. So there, are they doing it or are they not doing it adequately? Well, here's the interesting stat, though. We have uh, people in that age category actually think they're doing a better job than everybody else. The uh, 91% of 18 to 34-year-olds rate themselves an 8 or a higher. And that includes, again, a 42% who gave themselves a 10 out of 10. But like the rest of us, they also rate their peer group much lower. So if you, if you ask a 25-year-old how they're doing, they think they're doing a great job. And you ask how are their friends doing, they give themselves a terrible score. This is so funny. This, is, this so demonstrates that issue, that conundrum of human nature, doesn't it? It really does. It really makes you question who is doing a good job. So we, the poll looked a little bit more at behaviors. So behaviors is often a better indicator. And despite uh, uh, scoring ourselves fairly favorably, we're really not adhering very well to the recommendation to stay home and indoors. The average uh, British Columbian left their house two times this past week to shop for groceries, once a week for other shopping needs, three times to walk and exercise, which is, you know, in the right context is not a terrible thing. Yeah. And then multiple times for other reasons. So it tallies up to about nine times per person leaving their home in the past week. 
Right, but if you ask them, they probably tell you they're never leaving their house. Exactly. That's funny. Okay, and what are they doing while they are at home? I know you ask people about their kind of behaviors and the things that they're doing more often than they normally would. Some of the ones that are obvious, yes, we're cooking more, we're reading, watching the news more. So 70% of us say, yes, we're reading, watching the news more. Uh, 60% say we're cooking more. 60% say you're using social media. We're talking to family members more than we ever have. About 50% say it's more than we have ever. We're reading more. Um, The one that jumped out at me, which surprised me, is we're sleeping more. 45% say we're we're sleeping more than we do. And only 10% say they're sleeping less. And I thought that with all the unrest that people would have a hard time sleeping. Yeah, no, okay, well, they're catching up on their sleep. Uh, they're also, uh, the other stat I noticed was there, 34% of people said they're buying more from local businesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a, a very micro-level trend, you know, not just local as in from British Columbia, but their neighbor's business, the person down the street, a friend in their hockey group, and that's uh, 34% of us are doing that more often than what we have been. And the other one that jumped out at me, Simi, was that, of us are spending less money. Yeah. Uh, 33% are spending a little less and 25% a lot less. And if you look at the impact economically, and we see the rollout every day with with numbers that come out from different organizations and companies, those numbers are quite frightening. That is quite frightening. 58% of people saying they are spending less money. Uh, What about drinking alcohol? This is something that has come up uh, quite a bit recently with uh, different health recommendations about take it easy on the booze while you're in self-isolation. What did your poll tell us? This one surprised me. And, you know, all of my colleagues were placing bets on this one. But it actually is about even. Uh, 25% of us are drinking more. 23% are drinking less. And 52% are just the same. Really? Yeah, which is... And the stats from BCLDB show that the numbers have increased by 40%. But don't forget, we're not going to restaurants. We're not having a beer after hockey games. We're not, you know, we're drinking at home. So yes, the numbers are dramatically higher, but uh, it looks like there's the results on both sides of that equation. Oh, so you're saying home buying is essentially making up for what we would normally drink at a restaurant or a bar. Yes. Yeah. But still 25% of us are saying we're drinking more. And that includes about 8% who say uh, a lot more. And I love the fact that you asked people about their eating habits because now I've heard about the quarantine 15, uh, mm-hmm. about the don't worry about that 15 pounds that you might put on during this whole self-isolation. Uh, you oh, asked no. people about their eating habits too. We did and we, uh, we asked it both ways. Are you eating healthier or are you eating more unhealthy foods? And again, there's, there's segments on both sides. We have 22% who are eating a lot more unhealthy foods than what they ever have. Um, but on the flip side, we've got 34% who are eating healthier than they ever have. You know, they control what they're cooking. There's less maybe fat, less salt in their diet uh, as a result. So I would have thought that, you know, with all of the uh, chatter on Instagram about it, that people would, would actually give themselves less credit and that they're eating more poorly. But it looks like the opposite is true. I would have thought that too. And what about giving money to charities? Giving money to charities uh, was, let me just dig that out. It's about split. And we've seen, you know, different results coming out of different organizations that, uh, say that we're giving more or some less. So it is 18% of us say we're spending more and 18% less. So interesting. Because, yeah, you're right. A lot of this is not what I thought it was going to be. No, and, and same with us. And this is why we thought we'd put numbers around it because, you know, it's the same polling methods that we use to put, predict election results. So presumably we can measure social behaviors in the same way. Um, financially helping friends and family, that's, uh, that's an area where we are spending more. So 19% of us are helping our families more often 
13% helping our friends more often as well. Interesting numbers. Steve, thanks so much. You're welcome. That is Steve Mazza, president at Insights West, with some really intriguing new polling that they have done on how essentially BC residents score themselves on social distancing. And I, I love the results of this. It's 89% of BC residents gave themselves an 8, 9, or 10 out of 10 when it came to complying with social distancing. But 35% are critical of other British Columbians saying, well, I see lots of people who aren't following the rules. Those two numbers don't really jibe, do they? We can't all be saying we're doing a good job, and yet we think other people are not doing a good job. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, according to a new Insights West poll that we talked about about an hour ago here on the show, 45% of us say that we are doing more reading during our self-isolation and quarantining. Probably comes as no surprise to you. I know I am rapidly working my way down a stack of books uh, to talk more about that and the help that some companies are providing to those readers out there. We're joined now by Heather Reisman, the chair of the Indigo Love of Reading Foundation. Heather, thanks for being with us. Hello, how are you? I'm good, thank you. So I know there's a lot of kids at home right now doing some work, so tell us about this fund that's been created. So yesterday we announced uh, that we have that we are giving away $1 million worth of books and educational materials to reach uh, kids who are living in high-needs communities where perhaps they don't have the ability to just go online and order whatever they want. Their schools are closed. The school libraries in these communities are essential for these kids to inspire their reading, whether they're developing technical skills or they're just getting lost in a book. And so we decided that we would make this uh, special uh, grant available at this time when it just feels like yeah. it would just bring so much joy. Oh, I know um, it would have to me as a kid. So how do, <laughs> how do, how do they access this? How does this work? Um, so we've partnered up with um, a few other organizations, and now I have to get the names so I have them all for you, and I should have had this right on, uh, because the organizations themselves have uh, networks into the communities. Uh, hold on, because it just is so much has happened in such a short I'll time. Bet. yes. Um, shoot, do, 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 do. I, I should get this to you, and so bad on me for not knowing them. I know we have the Martin Foundation. And I know we have a few other big organizations, and I just—is this available well, online? Then people can just kind of yes, it's all available. Okay, good. It's all available online. If you go to indigo.ca and you go into the Love of Reading uh, commitment, it will say what all the organizations are um, that are uh, distributing okay. these uh, books. And then uh, we've also said if anybody feels like they have the ability to reach out. They can also get in touch with them if they say, well, I'm connected to this high-needs area. The uh, Community Response Fund oh, will great. be able to help them. And is it all so, ages of books? It's for all kids in school up to grade uh, nine, yes. Okay, that would be fantastic. Yeah, how, it how really is, is. How has Indigo managed to pivot here, Heather? I know this has been tough times. It's a hard personal hardship for me that your stores are closed. Uh, to yeah. not be able to go in and get some books. Uh, has there been an increase in deliveries? Uh, yes, online has just soared. And you were quite right in the introduction that uh, people are reading more. And here's what's interesting. They're reading more of real books. I think, you know, everyone's having to stay so connected online that they're rediscovering the joy of real books. And so we've just seen, we've had a 300% growth in Whoa. our 
physical book sales. We also, of course, provide digital books, but it's the physical books that have just had so much. Um, and let me just say, if you go to our website, indigo.ca, and you press on the big banner that says the Community Relief Fund, all the instructions are there for how you can access the money, how you can uh, help organizations you know. It's all there. And have have you um, noticed with that 300% increase, I mean, is it right across the board, like families ordering, kids ordering, parents ordering, you name it? Everything. So much for kids. Uh, A lot of uh, educational material, books, uh, creative play, puzzles. um, Oh, puzzles. Don't get me started on puzzles. In their wellness. Yeah. Oh, I have this for you now. The three organizations are Jay's Care Foundation, the Martin Family Initiative, and Boys and Girls Club of Canada. They are our main partners in distributing. But in addition to that, if you go online, indigo.ca, it will take you right to a page where you can access uh, resources. That is perfect. And you mentioned puzzles there just very quickly. I mean, a huge explosion in the number of people doing puzzles. You must be selling tons Uh of those. Tons of puzzles. And uh, it's, it's great to see what people are engaging in. Basically, it is reading, it's puzzles, it's self-care, it's cooking. Yeah. So cooking and making those things that are so much about home. Bread making. We, we've uh, had a huge run on books about bread, bread makers. People are doing those things that are part of nesting. Yeah. And I think if there's one positive sense of what's going on, it is slowing us down a bit. And... I'm hoping that something good comes out of that in the midst of all this. Yeah, I hope so, too. So you're continuing on doing your work. I just read your latest uh, Heather's pick, by the way. Um, Which one? My Dark Vanessa. Oh, yes. Did you like it? Oh, no words to describe how much I like that book. Like, (laughs) I whipped through that in just a couple of days, actually. It was so good. So you're still doing a lot of reading. Oh, what's the new one? My new one, uh, Long Petals of the Sea, is a beautiful book by Isabel Allende, and um, I could so recommend it. It's a wonderful story set against the backdrop, first of the Spanish Civil War and then World War II, but it's really an intimate story of a couple of families and some immigrants. Um, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful book Done. by just... Isabel Allende. It's called A Long Petal of the Sea. Well, I just put it on my list. Heather, thank you so much for talking to us this okay. morning. Have a beautiful day. You too. That's Heather Reisman, chair of the Indigo Love of Reading Foundation, also, of course, head of Indigo Books. Uh, Their stores, as you heard, are closed, uh, but their online sales have gone up by 300% in this uh, self-isolation era that we find ourselves in. Uh, But their foundation that they have there is providing a million dollars of books for kids right across the country. So just go to their website, indigo.ca. I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there, teachers out there right now who think, hey, this might be a fun thing for my class or kids to get into. It's uh, And so the books are suitable for like young kids right up to grade nine. Check it out because it's always fun to get a little something that uh, something new for the kids to check out right about now. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, as we come up to the end of our show here, as always, we've got a couple of good news stories to tell you about. Uh, so let's start with our first one. Now, did you know April is Sick Heritage Month? 
Here's another interesting fact for you. The first sick person to arrive in Canada came in 1897. He was with the British Indian Army and stopped in Vancouver only temporarily, but was on his way to England to help celebrate Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. That was 1897. Things have really changed since then. We've had a lot of growth in the sick community over the last 100 years. And with that has come a huge growth in the number of sick charitable organizations as well. Jatinder Singh is the director of Kalsa Aid Canada. Now, he's based out of Victoria, but he spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer about all of that charity work, as well as the history of Sikhs in British Columbia. The Sikhs uh, started coming here in the 1890s. It was predominantly men to work in the lumber industry. One unique story which we talked about last year was the fact that Canada would not allow the women and children to come. So there was a struggle for two decades to have women and children come. I think Canada at the time knew that if families came here, they will settle. And they didn't want that. They wanted the men to come here and work in what were high-risk jobs. There was a lot of injuries out in the, in the mills, you know, living in um, kind of these cabins. And sometimes, you know, TB would be rampant and people would get sick. But what happened, I think, as a result of World War II and other factors, British India put a lot of pressure on Canada and said, please let the women in. You know, if we, you know, during a colonial time, if, if it's all considered under one umbrella, then they should be allowed to come. So I think it was um, Christmas Eve in 1919 that they finally had an ordering council. And then in the succeeding years, a handful of women and children started coming into Canada. And that's essentially when we're able to really settle here and have a future within Canada. Wow, that's incredible, eh? Yeah, it is incredible. I mean, it's only 100 years ago, but, you know, you look now 100 years later and the sick men and women are in, in every field and succeeding and truly part of the Canadian fabric. Now, Kalsa Aid also helps a lot of people internationally, especially with disaster relief, and they have been providing regular assistance during the pandemic. And he said demand for their aid work has really increased. Yeah, we're used to working in disaster relief where the infrastructure has shut down. I think what's unique here is volunteer safety is paramount. Literally, what's happening at 9 a.m., in, in any given day changes by 5 p.m. due to uh, provincial rules or recommendations. So right now across the country, we've predominantly have been doing either grocery drop-offs or grocery pickups for those who are mobile. And I think we worked in over 600 locations and at the last count as of Saturday um, had helped just over 4,000 people. And what we're doing is, is as I mentioned, for students who are financially struggling, uh, single parents who cannot go to grocery stores because they don't want to bring their children with them, elderly members of our community who are immunocompromised or their health is such that they shouldn't be going out. We've been helping them with delivering groceries to them or medicines. The other area that we're working is with food banks. So we delivered aid to the Surrey Urban Mission Centre as well as uh, sources in, uh, I think it's Surrey and Langley. And we provided them with essentially groceries that would feed just over 1600. Now, also, we want to mention something else here as well. It's not just about providing food. They're also trying to help enrich the lives of local families. 
it's the little things yeah we we had a request from a single parent whose son is autistic in metro vancouver now she likes to take her child daily to the local park because he likes to go on, on the swings she cannot do that so we were approached and asked can we get a swing and we said absolutely so we will be getting a swing for the child but you know even getting that built we have to be concerned about volunteer safety it's like make sure the family stays inside we will build the swing sanitize it leave and then you can you know enjoy it maybe the following day that's lovely that is jatinder singh works with kalsa aid